Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Allison Lee Burgess. She's a licensed psychotherapist, professional speaker, and parent coach. Today, we discuss moving from expectations to appreciation in parenting. For nearly a decade, she has specialized in working with highly sensitive, anxious, and spirited teens and their parents to help families stay emotionally connected through even the most intense times. She's a single working mom and a proud parent of three fabulous teenagers. She has a private practice in Pacific Palisades, California, and also coaches clients virtually across the country. Welcome, Allison. Thank you for having me. So today, what we're going to talk about specifically is what you do and your specialty and this idea of moving from expectations to appreciation in parenting. Give me a, can you maybe just describe a little bit about how you approach treatment and how you approach kind of talking yeah. about parenting? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a therapist in the Palisades and I work mainly with teens and adults on kind of anything relating to anxiety and anxiety mm-hmm. management. So you know, often I get a call, my kid has anxiety or my kid's been freaking out a lot or things are kind of out of control. I don't really know what to do. And then interviewing the teen and kind of finding out usually there's oftentimes there's a little more going on. These kids often will have some different kinds of needs. They could have ADHD. They could have some some traits of maybe OCD. They might have a learning disability like dyslexia or dysgraphia, or they could have traits of autism. Right. So sometimes when they come in and see me, and if I sense there's a little something more going on, I kind of assess them from that angle. And that's, that's that term neurodiversity that's been coming up more and more. So a big, big piece of my work has been to help introduce the idea of neurodiversity, which just means a differently wired brain to parents and to the teens themselves to be like, well, if you have ADHD, then making a quick change or somebody pulling the rug out from under you is going to be pretty upsetting, right? And I can see where if you don't handle quick change well and your mom gets really irritated because you can't make the change, then you guys are going to end up in a fight. So, you know, more and more, it seems to be there's this big piece and I've, I've noticed it more over the past, you know, a couple of years. That's like often kids that present with anxiety or often depression are kids that have had some underlying issues that have gone unnoticed. These are really high functioning people. So sometimes we'll see things that, that I notice are impacting the relationship between the parents and the kid, a lot of misunderstandings and things like that. So it's been really fun and interesting work to kind of get under the layers of that and be like, Oh, it's not quite so simple. You know, it's not just that she's nervous about school, Mm -hmm. right? There's a really complex dynamic going on. So it's really kind of a pleasure in a way to be like, I think there might be something else going on. It's not just that you refuse to get along with your parents or you will not do your homework. It's not that cut and dry. And that's like, I think the, it's probably the best part of my job is when I get a kid like that, whether they have a diagnosis or whether they have these kind of things where they're not quite fitting in the box to be able to kind of identify that and normalize that for them. And then work with the families to be like, you guys have been doing such a great job, but you didn't get the manual that her brain is different. Like 
you're doing everything we were taught to do as parents. But the reason it's not working isn't because you have a bad kid or a lazy kid or a defiant kid. It's that she can't do what you're asking her to do in the moment. Yeah, a lot of my work has been trying to help the people in the relational in the relational way because it's impacting how they feel about themselves. Right. And I feel like this idea of expectations to appreciation. So it sounds like that is a common theme that has come up with your work with teens and their parents, right? And kind of how that gets in the way in terms of expectations that maybe don't match up. Well, right. I mean, I have three teenagers of my own. So I am, you know, right in the pack with everybody else in learning about this and having expectations of myself and my family and what each of them do. And it's been a real learning experience, both personally and professionally, to come across different issues that don't quite fit the way I was taught you should be parenting. Mm -hmm. And it didn't match the kid. And so then there'd be conflict or there'd be misunderstandings. And so I just feel really strongly that there's, there's so many more parts to parenting than I thought, you know, where we're kind of taught maybe one size fits all, right? This is how you, this is how you become responsible. This is how I'm going to teach you to become respectful. This is, this, this is how you behave and having to, you know, it's very humbling, right? So it's just been a long journey of realizing that my expectations were not meeting the needs of my kids and having to relearn them and what they needed sometimes is really different than what I thought I wanted. Right. So it's a real passion of mine in my work to help other families do the same. You know, we all have an idea in our minds of who our kids are, or who we think they're going to be. And it's really hard not to let those expectations lead a lot of your parenting decisions. Right. So it's kind of this idea of flexibility with parenting. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's having like the flexible mind to be like, well, if I want my kid to do something and they're not doing it, that I don't look at it in that one rigid way. It's, it's like, well, why aren't they doing it? My assumption is they might be, I don't know, being rude or disrespectful or defiant. But if you look at it from the kid's perspective, they may be really struggling with something and their brain works differently, let's say. And so they can't do what you need them to do in the way that you need them to do it. So there's conflict because neither one of us is really understanding where the other's coming from, even though we want we're trying. Right. Mentalization, this idea that understand the other person's perspective of, of how they're experiencing something in order to understand how you should then approach solving a problem with them. Right. I mean, you know, I remember a long time ago when my kids were really small, I was like, well, I'm going to make sure to do things differently than they were done for me. And someone very wise said, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's you're going to be influenced just as much by, you know, your upbringing. Let's say you need to look at the child in front of you and what do they need separate from what you want? And I was like, Oh, well that makes a lot more sense, yeah. right? It's getting out of my own perception of what I want and be like, well, what does this child actually need? Yeah. But it also makes me think. So if a parent comes to you saying, you know, my child isn't doing things the way that I feel like they need to be done. And I understand that there probably is a lot of flexibility with maybe how a parent can think about that, but there also is this realm of kind of these things that actually aren't 
flexible in terms of, I'm trying to think of an example that they say, you know, a curfew, right? There is no flexibility in the time that I agree to have my child come home at night. And so how do you, I mean, not everything is flexible in parenting as well. Well, here's, I, I will say this ad nauseum to people that I work with is you cannot have compliance without connection. So you can get compliance out of fear, right? That's kind of an old school parenting style of threatening. If you do not come home on time, there is going to be this major recrimination that might work, but you've lost the emotional connection and that's going to be more damaging to the relationship long-term. So I try to teach parents, like, I get it. There, of course, there are deal breakers at every home. There is not a one size fits all. I know that better than anybody. And it really is like, if you're going to lean into a rule, then you're going to have more chance of it working if you guys have an understanding and a connection under that, if they really mm-hmm. feel like you get them, right? So that's, I think the number one thing that I hear from the teens is they come in and I'm working with them and they say, my parents don't get it. My parents do not get it. I feel misunderstood. I'm shut down. They don't get me. And guess what happens over time, right? That develops into the anxiety and depression that led them to my office in the first place. Right. And I also just think about longer term, just kind of how you want as a parent, your relationship to be with your adult child. Well, I think the the saddest thing that I see is like an older teenager who, for whatever reason, it's almost always well-meaning parents, educated, well-meaning parents who they they are misunderstanding each other and have that kind of block. And I see that older teen getting ready to leave for college and they can't wait to get out and never come home. Mm -hmm. And so I I think about it that way as a, as a parent myself and working with other parents, let's talk about what's really important here is the long-term connection that you have. Yes, of course you want them to launch and go away to college or whatever it is that they want to do but you want them to to want to stay connected to you. So that to me is the the basis of everything. I'll have, you know, families call me kind of in crisis and there's so many things going on and they're like, we need to lock this kid down. Like she's out of control. Let's say, you know, she's going places and doing things. And I'm like, right. But if she doesn't feel safe with you guys, if she doesn't feel safe to mess up or being caught in a lie that you guys will be understanding then we've got to dial it all the way back and start at the basics, which is we need you guys to learn how to like each other again, right? Mm -hmm. Then you build it from there. If you start that top down of like, well, things have gotten crazy. So we're going to just implement all these rules and structures. That teen, especially as they get older, is going to be like, forget that. You guys haven't earned it, right? I don't like you. I don't trust you. You don't get me. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's a hard thing and takes a lot of effort on the parent's part to understand and get to know their kids. Yeah. So what I was going to ask you is kind of the typical themes of what, what gets brought into your room in terms of therapy. I mean, what are kind of typical themes these days that you're seeing? You know, I see a lot of social anxiety and I saw it before COVID and during COVID, it's been really interesting. It's almost like their social skills are getting rusty and these could be, you know, middle school kids or they could be high school kids or older It's like they've been alone. They feel out of practice socially so that if there was a time that they could see friends or they're Zooming with friends or whatever, that they're telling me it feels really awkward. So a lot of them are getting used to being more isolated, which isn't great. But I thought that was something that, you know, I didn't really anticipate that they're getting a little rusty. They, you know, I already was concerned that they don't have great face-to-face skills. 
because of electronics. So that's something that that's come up a lot is people feeling really uncomfortable with being judged, saying something stupid. A lot of body image stuff has come up during COVID as well. A lot of eating things, eating disorders and things like that. So how do you address those issues during these times then? You know, it's, it, you got to get really creative with building your social supports. You know, it depends on the kid, right? Some kids are kind of like, you know, I don't need 25 friends. Other people are really climbing the walls and really, really need that. So, you know, you've got to get really creative. What does that individual need, right? And they have to build it into their day. And again, because it's it's COVID and every family has different rules about who they can see and why, it's like really in, like an individualized plan. I have one middle schooler who is obsessed with friends and hanging out with friends and has to have a play date every day. And like, so we're really working on, okay, this is really important for you to kind of fill that cup every day. So how are we going to do it? Like knowing that it's not going to be exactly how you want it. How do we tolerate the times that you aren't with them? Right. Or if it's plans change and you're not going to have a play date today, how do you tolerate it? Hmm. Right? Right. So it's kind of, building up those skills and also saying, okay, it sounds like it's really important for you to reach out. Another thing we do that's kind of fun, and I'll even do this with older teens. I've even done it with adults. is to do friend circles. So like, we'll sit down and I'll be like, okay, your inner circle, it's like, you almost like do like a, like a bullet, right. With like maybe two or three rings. And the inner circle is like, who are your very, very closest friends? Like usually like one or two, the people you really tell your feelings to put them in there. Then in that next ring is like your friends, the friends you talk to kind of on a regular basis. Then there's like the ring out here, which is more like maybe people in your activities or on your sports teams. And then maybe if you want, you can do that last ring of just, you know, acquaintances, people, you know, maybe you'd invite them to a big party or something. And then once they've done all that, you kind of look at that and you say, okay, take a look at the whole thing, all the different people in your world. And then let's see if we want to move any of them. Do you want to bring any of them in? Is there anybody that you want to move back a ring? And it starts to make them see, oh my gosh, I do. I have a lot of people, right? I have a lot more friends than I remembered. And oh yeah, that girl was really nice. I remember her. I should reach out to her. So that's been a kind of a fun thing in COVID too, because it diminishes the, the awkwardness of reaching out to someone you haven't talked to in a while because no one's seeing each other. So a quick DM or a text isn't as awkward. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of a fun thing too. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, it could go the other way. People you want to move out of your inner circle, yeah. kind of people maybe who are not good for you, realizing that there is a fluidity in relationships and your connection with people. Right. And then it brings them back to kind of some of their clinical issues. It's like, well, I'd really like to be friends with that person, but that person comes with a whole group of people I don't like, mm-hmm. or they don't like me, you know? Mm-hmm. So you get to work on some of that social stuff. And I think it's empowering for them to be like, wow, I was so fixated on this group over here. I didn't realize that there are more people. I'm not alone. I'm also wondering, what are parents coming to you? What are the main concerns during these times that parents are bringing up? Well, it's really interesting. I usually get a call from a parent. My kid has anxiety or my kid is expressing that they're stressed out or they're really worried and they're not doing well. They'll say, my kid's freaking out. I get that phrase a lot meaning kind of like a kind of like a teen tantrum which is just kind of ranting and just general irritability and like just being difficult to be around and door slamming you know that kind of behavior 
or I'll get my kids really isolating, right? And I'm worried about them and they're, they're kind of internalizing. So those are the two things that I get. And then kind of going back to what we were saying earlier, when I meet the, the teen and talk to them, often they will say things like, yeah, I've, 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 you know, I've had anxiety for a while, or I'm really stressed about school or friends, but it's bigger than that, right? It's like, it's in my life and my parents don't get it. And I'll say, well, what do you mean? Like they were so helpful in, in getting you support. And, you know, obviously they care about you and they're like, they don't get it. They don't get me at all. I'm like, okay, well, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. And this comes up more and more and more. Also this idea that one behavior or one kind of repeated type of behavior does not define the individual, right? It, it just kind of allows you to have a kind of a little bit of an opening into understanding why. Right. And you know this and, and everybody knows how you, you write a narrative about the people you know, right? Like mom always gets mad, right? Or like my daughter's always defiant. Like there's these kind of narratives that we get going in our brains, especially within our families that are hard to break. Mm. So if I'm a mom and my kid never turns in her homework and I'm always having to write her to turn the homework, I'm starting to draw a pattern here, right? And so in my mind, I'm like, there she goes again. And she's doing the same thing for me. Oh, mom is always angry with me for like writing me about my homework. Mm -hmm. But if we had a better understanding of, well, the reason I don't turn in my homework is I have such significant anxiety that sometimes I sort of panic and I just avoid, then mom could potentially react a little differently. Oh, well, oh, I don't have that problem just submitting work. So I didn't relate to the fact that it's, it's really, really uncomfortable for you to reach out to your teacher and do that. Why do we brainstorm how to make that a little easier? doesn't occur to me because I don't think like that. Right, right. And also kind of thinking about this idea that you want your child to adapt to the world in any way that they possibly can, right? And so it's just not productive, right? So the, the right. idea of kind of having this narrative of just being angry and, you know, kind of repeating these same scenarios over and over again does not allow your child or your teen to adapt in a way that's going to be productive for them moving forward. Well, and that's, that's brings me to something else really important is that and as a parent who has had children in therapy, I've kind of been on every side of these couches, right. And experienced different kinds of treatment. And I think the other important piece of the, of the therapeutic work is not to, to change you or fix you, right. If they come in and they say, my mom says I'm freaking out or I have too much anxiety and I need to fix that. And I don't want to do that anymore. It's helping them change their expectations of themselves too. It's like, well, but if it's already hard for you to reach out to your teacher, then you can't have an expectation that suddenly you're just going to do it. No problem. Right. So it's about, you're great the way you are. We all have quirks. We all have weird, you know, preferences and things that we like and don't like to do. And the part of the work is just to figure out what are yours. And if one of yours is, well, I get really panicky when I have to send an email to a teacher, then that just is what it is. And so then you can learn, well, that's just that thing about me. I get nervous about that. So how can I self-advocate? Mm -hmm. It's nothing to hide. It's nothing to push through and change. And it's a really important concept with parents too. You know, it's like, I can't fix the problem, but I can help them live with it, demystify it and validate it. So they don't have so much shame around it, that it's like something I need to change about myself. That's bad. Right. And develop maybe a workaround. 
yeah, developing a workaround and not, not having shame or judgment is what it is. You Mm -hmm. know, I use this analogy of, you know, I have fair skin and I, when I go in the sun, I will sunburn and I can hate it. And it's such a drag and I can't be in the sun as much as my friends. And there's things that I want to do. I can complain and complain about it, but the fact remains that's the color of my skin. So I can either accommodate for myself and wear long sleeves or put on sunscreen, or I can like, you know, leave early or say I can come for an hour, right? That's how you accommodate for yourself. I don't like this. I don't like that my skin is pale and can, and can burn, but I can't judge it. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. So if you have an attention issue, or if you have really strong social anxiety, or you have something else that's keeping you from doing something you want, it's no shame around it. You know, of course you don't want it, but instead of trying to wrestle it to the ground and get it to go away, it's much easier to go. Yeah, this is something that I live with, mm-hmm. right? You're much more able to accommodate for yourself if you can accept that stuff. And it's hard work to do that. Right. Right. With the understanding that you don't want to avoid every single thing though. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, that you can't really avoid. It's more like you absorb it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, if I know, let's say there's a kid with social anxiety and they have to give a talk, you know, oh, I have a kid now actually who is in a history class and the teacher does these breakout rooms between students and she's got really severe social anxiety. So the parent came to find out that she was not going to class. So the parent said, you're being lazy and not going to class. And this is unacceptable, right? That's the rule is that you go to class. But when we got a little deeper, it was, I'm so scared of the breakout rooms. I can't tolerate it. So I avoid it. Hmm. Right. And so then it was like, let's talk about how we can make that work for you. If it's a strong enough thing and we need an official accommodation, we can do that. If it is just How can we help you tolerate when you know you're going to have a breakout room? There are things you can do. It's still not going to be your favorite thing to do, but can we work up to you being able to tolerate it, right? Just for a few minutes, can you tolerate doing it, knowing it's coming, practicing your calming skills and getting through it? Right. So one thing I wanted to ask too, and I I think it's different for each case, but where do these parental expectations originate? How do you see that? And I'm sure there's so many different answers for even one individual, but how do you think about that? I think they're social constructs. I was trained in narrative therapy in in my internship and it's a very forward thinking approach. And it's kind of about the stories we write about ourselves and the things that should and shouldn't happen, right? And we're all guilty of it because we, you know, our brains work that way. We want to plan ahead, we imagine, we hope, we dream. So humans look around at their peer group to see, am I normal, right? So expectations come from your culture and your environment, in my opinion, right? So there are different cultural values depending on where you live, depending on how you live, depending on your you know, individual family values. So it's really interesting work to say to people, I'm sure you, you know this too, that whole rule about the shoulds. I should do this. I should be married by now. I should be getting straight A's. Like, I shouldn't be freaking out this much. Like, I shouldn't be doing that. Like, I should be working harder. And I always say, okay, says who? Well, I don't know. Like, my parents. Really? Do they say that? 
well, no, it's just understood. Like, that's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. I should be going to a fancy college, right? Okay, says who? What do you want? And this is for adults too, is really breaking down that, those expectations of yourself and being like, wow, at the end of the day, that it's the truth. It's like, what do I even want for myself? What's important to me outside of what my neighbors or friends think? It's deep work, but it's, you know, that's something that I love to do with everybody because we're all guilty of it. We all live in society. Right. But I think it's also, it is kind of deep, complex work, but this idea that your goal as a parent, I mean, I would assume most people would say, I want my child to live a fulfilling life, right? I want them to be happy. And I think it's hard to know what that means. And this idea that, okay, if they go to a good college or if they get a great job, or if they find a great partner and have a family, they'll be happy. Right. And I think everyone is so different in terms of what might make them happy and content. And this idea of modeling, this idea that, you know, it's this dynamic thing and it's, it's different for each person is actually a really good way to, I mean, I think a a great way to do it as a parent, because you model this idea that it's dynamic and it can change. And it's about just not this societal expectation, but more about kind of who you are. And that's just an important thing in terms of just operating throughout life, even as an adult. Well, that's the number one thing parents say is I want my kid to be happy. And I'm like, well, of course we all do, but, but that begins with feeling emotionally safe and knowing how to connect and knowing your gut, right? So it is like, you know, I watched the Tiger Woods documentary and it was, you know, real cautionary tale on expectations from the parents, right? To this very talented child and and the complex relationship that developed, right? And some of the challenges that he faced later in his life. So I like your point of really, it's organic and it grows and it changes. And all of us do this with the people we love. We're like, oh, she likes this. She's going to be a great lawyer one day. It's like, well, maybe she wants to be a gardener, right? We ha- how do we keep it open enough to be like, if, if we really want to put our money where our mouth is and we want our children to grow up and have a strong sense of self and be connected and be deeply content, that's like really coming from within and not as much about the should. It's not as much about the school and the job. And, and hopefully those things will come. So, yeah, you get really. Yeah, it almost originates from a parental message. It does, and like like I said, it's human. We're all we're all guilty of it. Nobody's doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. It's more of just reexamining. You know, each year your kid gets to completely reinvent themselves. You know, I mean, they could go all the way through college and change their mind at the end. I mean, this is a fluid process, right? So, I'll tell parents and teens you know, it's okay to not know what you want. It's okay to do something that you like because you like it right now, right? Not because it's going to look good on your resume for college or that you've got to do this because your parents did it. Like in your gut, what feels interesting to you right now and follow that. And you can change. If you choose a college and you don't love it, it's okay. It is not the end of the world to change schools. Mm -hmm. You know, and I see that that huge anxiety of like, I've got to, I've got to make this thing happen. This huge expectation, the family needs it and I need it. And it's life or death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I also see it the other way too. I mean, maybe some parents say my child isn't interested in anything, nothing captures them, or they think, oh, they're so focused on one thing that they're not really allowing space to come for other interests to really emerge. 
You know, I think it's it's a question of patience and curiosity. I'll experience that even with my own kids. I'm like, oh, why are they just lying around? I can't get them to go outside or whatever it is. But if you really listen and you really, from an active listening place of like, I'm, I'm going to try to listen without my own agenda, you know, ringing in my ears. It's tell me what it is that you like about lying around. Like maybe they're imagining, maybe they're creating something in their brain, you know. My point is, I do really believe philosophically that we all have passion and interests and deeper layers. And sometimes it can be the parent kind of looking in and being like, well, I see my kid just lying on his bed all day. I want to get him out and do something. He needs his passion. We can do that, but it may not be the way that you think it's going to look. Right. So it's interesting is the kind of like the, the first piece is kind of helping parents with the expectation. And the second part is helping them deal with the fallout. Like there is interestingly, a lot of grief work in parenting, you know, like if you have a kid who turns out to have special needs or even just any challenges at all, social challenges, anything, there is a little bit of grief of like, wait, that's not what I expected. Right. I always joke with my friends, like, this is not what I ordered in the baby catalog. Like I had it all planned out and lo and behold, we've got some different challenges. Mm-hmm. So there is a little, there, there's often when I work with parents, there's a lot of kind of pain of sort of this adjustment of their expectation and that it's, it's painful to readjust it, even though you will, it's your child. You love them no matter what. Right. But it's, yeah. it's often painful. That is actually a really good point. Well, I think that might be a really great place to end, not on the pain, but the fact that, you know, it is this process where there are highs and lows and there's flexibility. Our talk is kind of this idea of kind of changing expectations to acceptance because it's really obviously a way to achieve joy in parenting too. Right. Yeah. There should be a little bit of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything before we say goodbye, you know, you want to bring up, I'll make sure that I have your website on the episode description so people can learn a little bit about you, but any other resources too, that you want to talk about? Um, I have a little parenting toolkit kind of gives people some tips um, on some of the things that we touched on today and just kind of some things that I use when I'm working with parents and families kind of get them better connected. You know, I'm welcome to send that to anyone who reaches out. Great. Yeah. Well, your information will be on your website, which will be linked to the episode. And so I really appreciate your time and thanks for sharing your expertise. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina Del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.